Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you had a good lunch break. Before we begin our afternoon program, a gentle reminder to use our conference hashtag if you're posting about the conference on social media. Our conference hashtag is hashtag IPSWomen2021. The title of our third panel is Mindsets and Minefields. In this session, the speakers will be considering how mindsets and attitudes play a role in issues of gender equality. The moderator of this panel is Ms. Junie Fu. Ms. Fu is the current president of the Singapore Council of Women's Organizations. She is also chief executive officer at Methodist Welfare Services. Ms. Fu, over to you. Thank you, Jackie. Welcome back, everybody. Very good afternoon. Um, I'm Junie, president of uh, Singapore Council of Women's Organizations. And uh, I always take the opportunity to share about SCWO and what we do. Essentially, we are the national coordinating body of women organizations in Singapore. And it is not a coincidence that uh, we want to work towards the ideals of equal worth, equal space, and equal voice which is really what the three panel discussions are about today. We heard this morning about equal work, equal pay. Home is where the work is. And um, throughout the discussions, we, we heard um, you know, topics like societal norms, gender norms, traditions, all these crept into the conversations. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here. My heart flutters with excitement as I'll be moderating panel three as you can see, panel three is equally represented, very diverse, and aptly titled, and if I may say, challenging topic on mindsets and minefields. It is my pleasure to introduce our panelists. I will introduce all of them at uh, one go before they speak. So our very first speaker is Brian, Brian Tan. He is CEO of um, Dads for Life and Center for Fathering. He was formerly a senior officer with the Singapore Armed Forces and he took a mid-career switch to a social services sector in 2016. And he wants to serve fathers and the fatherless in Singapore. So Center for Fathering really is a non-profit organization. It was founded in 2000 and it promotes active and involved fathering and addresses the issues caused by fatherlessness in Singapore. We'll be hearing more from Brian later. The next speaker is Monica. Monica is an advocate for sexual violence survivors. If you remember as a student at uh, the National University of Singapore, she drew attention to sexual harm in the university setting after an experience of sexual voyeurism, eventually driving a major shift in attitudes towards uh, sexual violence. I, I really believe her courage has inspired many to step up and call out disrespectful behavior. The next speaker is uh, Wendell, Wendell Wong. He's co-head of Drew and Napier's investigations and criminal law practice. And he was also a former deputy public prosecutor with the Attorney General's Chambers. Wendell is also a very strong advocate for pro bono work and access to justice in Singapore. Last but not least is Danielle. Danielle is a lawyer and she's a spokesperson for AWARE's Aim for Zero campaign which fights for a society free from sexual violence. She has campaigned for zero tolerance of workplace sexual harassment across Singapore and works within the community 
to build a culture of support for those who have survived sexual violence. So without further ado, this morning we heard about how wives, how mothers want to always get to the baby first. Jessica was talking about it. We talked about let go and let dad. So I want to let Brian speak now. So Brian, over to you, please. Well, thank you, Junie. Thank you, IPS, uh, distinguished guests, participants, for this privilege for me to share on a topic that I have been trying to understand all my life. Although I have spent more than 26 years in organizations that are predominantly male, but I am still not entirely certain of what it takes to be a man in Singapore and what is really expected of me at home and in the community. So in my short sharing today, I hope to touch on some of these issues that I know a lot of you have been um, discussing at length about, especially in the earlier sessions. So let me first start by sharing the story of a very dear friend of mine who has given me permission to highlight her expectations of her husband and the father of her children. My friend married a man who was, whom she described was a hero outside, but a zero at home. He was very successful in his career and he served the community very well as a leader. However, he was absent in their marriage and in the lives of their children. She wished that he could be more present and she wished that he could have put in a little more into their marriage and into their family as he did with everyone else outside of home. She wanted a knight in shining armor to protect her, to stand up for her when she slighted. However, what she got after marriage was a man who puts her down sometimes during conversations amongst friends and even uses the threat of violence to handle conflicts in the marriage. It was almost impossible for her to have a conversation with her husband, who perceived everything she said as an accusation to his self-worth, to his identity. In order to protect his reputation, she had to keep her hurt and pain to herself and pray that some good man would enter his life to mentor and to change him. After seven years of that prayer, a few good men did appear through the Dads for Life um, network uh, to walk the journey of restoration and transformation with him. And today, my friend has a thriving marriage and her husband is a lot more involved in the lives of their four children. Her husband has since joined the organization and the fathering movement that turned his life and their marriage around. And he currently serves at the Center for Fathering as their chief executive officer. Yes, that dear friend of mine is my wife. And this is the story that I thought I would set for the context of uh, what masculinity is to me, how I learn it through my wife, through the community, and through society. So can I have the next slide, please? Sorry, I can't see anything from you. So is the slide on? Yes, it is, Brian. Okay. So back to the definition of masculinity. The American Psychological Association defines it as a set of physical and behavioral traits that are male typical and that therefore distinguishes men from women on average. And we see that behaviors are really shaped by society and what is at home. So let us see what society expects of men with regard to masculinity. Could I have the next slide, please? So these are just some of the definitions of um, masculinity 
in the context of men in America. I would like to say that at this point, a lot of it um, seemed to resonate with a lot of the men here in Singapore. Although I would like to add also that um, uh, in my growing up years, um, my main source of masculinity really came from my dad. So a lot of these things that you see on the screen, I've seen it being imparted to me uh, through my dad, through uh, male authority figures in my life. Things like, you know, Brian, you've got to be strong and resilient so that you can protect and provide for your family. Don't display emotions or vulnerability because you don't want people taking advantage of you for the sake of your family. And be self-sacrificial and never burden others. So at a very young age, I and I believe many other men have learned to be independent, have learned to be stoic, have learned um, all of uh, what it takes to be an alpha male for the sake of our families. But at the same time, Increasingly today, we know that not all of these things um, are a good descriptor of masculinity, especially in Singapore. Um, at That's for life. We have observed a very good shift in Singapore today that more men are willing to support their wives um, at work and by sharing household chores, cooking, shared parenting responsibilities. You see a lot of this news coming up in social media and um, traditional media in the past uh, 12 months. And we find that increasingly more men are prepared to stay home and to mind the kids or elderly parents. Um, and does this make them any less masculine? I would say no. From my conversations with a lot of these men who have taken a step back from their careers, from their aspirations, to be at home because they felt the need to, and with the endorsement of their wives, of course, um, these men are very secure in their identity and very clear on the roles that they have to undertake as a son, as a husband, and as a father. However, at the same time, there are men that we know of who find it a challenge to live up to some of these expectations of society. And they often suffer in silence due to the lack of support from family or community. So in the next slide, if I could have it, my first recommendation is really for our government to look at supporting the establishments of more specialized services for men, especially fathers, because we have to model what masculinity should look like to our sons and daughters, and also to support those men who are undergoing challenges and stresses in life. And like what Frederick Douglass, an American social reformer, said, you know, it is so much easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Next slide. So in recent years, we have also come to appreciate how some aspects of our masculinity could be hurting the women in our lives. The American Psychological Association uh, defines toxic masculinity in some of these um, statements. But I have to confess that um, I, I couldn't resonate with the term toxic. Um, and I know this is true for many men that we have uh, uh, been engaging over the years because what is described here is so much a part of who we are as men. Um, personally, I see the need for some of these behaviors, for myself actually, um, to continue to remain strong for my family um, so that I do not burden them with my issues and I could uh, protect them when the need comes. Um, we live in a very volatile world. Um, it's not as safe as we would like it to be. Um, I've also been in a few um, face fights with 
people who are trying to rob me and all, and I find a need to um, demonstrate uh, violence in order to get away with my own life. And if my family comes in between such situations, I'll be more than ready to put my life on the line for my family. However, I also know that we cannot trivialize the hurts and the feelings of our women with regard to some of these aspects of masculinity that could be hurting them. And we have to address what constitutes um, such toxic behaviors on our part. So if I could have the next slide, please. So many studies have shown um, how you know, adhering to stereotypes of dominance and aggression could lead to um, increased likelihood of uh, women abuse and domestic partner violence. In an earlier panel, uh, Mr. Benny Ball is, is a subject matter expert in, in some of these areas. And he would, um, if you ever need to know more, you could look, look him up. We also know that toxic masculinity tends to emphasize the hyper-sexualization of women and hyper-competitiveness, -competitive, which tends to make the workplace more hostile. I'm not going to elaborate on that because I know one of my fellow panelists, uh, Danielle, would, uh, would speak a bit about it. However, I just want to make a point on the hyper-sexualization of women, where studies have shown that pornography has been linked to the objectification of women, which could affect how we men respect our women. On another note, I know much has also been done to keep our women physically safe in Singapore, as highlighted by our president earlier. Um, however, but the online realm remains a minefield for us to traverse, especially for our women, because the presence of male sexual predators continue to be prevalent and sometimes operate in syndicates. So next slide, please. So my next recommendation is really for the government to enhance legislation against pornography, not just the creation and distribution, but also the consumption of it, and to establish agencies that could protect women and children against online harm. Next, please. Many of you remember the UK riots. And to me, that is an extreme um, example of masculinity gone wrong. When young men and youths take to the streets to disrupt our peace and our way of life. And it is my belief that in every society, the older men need to regulate the behavior of the younger men. And that's why at Center for Fathering and That's for Life, we aim to ensure that every child in Singapore has access to their fathers or to their father figures. Next. And that is why our volunteers and sponsors share the urgency with us to reach as many fathers in Singapore as we possibly could to help them understand the influence that they have over the next generation. And apart from these numbers, we know that we see a lot more dads in playgrounds, more dads wearing baby carriers, more dads being involved in their children's schools. Um, this picture is a picture of the Wee family where we have Grandpa Wee um, running programs at our center for dads. His son is running an active fathers group in their school. And, I'm and I know that their four grandchildren are just benefiting from this uh, three generations of uh, good parenting that's passed down uh, to them. And we are privileged to be able to support so many communities of dads uh, in Singapore to enhance this role. So moving on to my last slide, please. So although we have resource and a community for fathers to connect with one another at the Center for Fathering, we continue to need your support. Uh, this QR code will give you a good glimpse of what we do at the Center. And uh, your partnership is required for advocacy, resource, and time so that we could eradicate fatherlessness in Singapore, have the right sense of masculinity passed down from one generation to the next. 
And as my wife has so freely given to me, to all the women here today, I seek your patience and grace as we men seek to understand your feelings towards how you have been treated so that we can address the issues of inequality together and also the lack of respect that you have experienced as a woman in Singapore. With that, I end my presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you. Um, I think one of the takeaways uh, from, from your presentation was also about how uh, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Um, and thank you. I, I thought it was really insightful that, uh, that you shared that. Um, our next speaker is Monica. I had, um, I had a lovely conversation with Monica uh, before the, the panel discussion and um, was privileged to be able to share some of my personal experiences with her as well. And so, so she, she shared with me that uh, she's going to just give some personal nuggets um, of her experiences. Um, there'll be no slides. So I will just let Monica to have the stage at this moment. Monica, please. Thank you, Junie. And um, thank you, Benny, too, for that insightful sharing toxic masculinity. I learned a lot from your sharing, actually. And it's always great to hear from men on the topic, especially, you know, given that there's so much pressure in Asian cultures. So thank you. That was really inspiring. And thanks, everyone, for having me here today. Um, I'm really humbled to be sitting among these other change makers on the panel and being given this opportunity to speak on my personal experiences. And thanks for all of those watching at home, too. Today, I wanted to make use of my time up here to share about the importance of survivor stories, why we need to hear them, and how we as a community can come together to encourage change in the way that they are perceived. So for those of you who don't know me or about my case, uh, let me give a bit of context. Uh, I was filmed non-consensually while showering in the hall toilet in my university in 2019. And um, after finally mustering the courage to make a report to the police, I was faced with the great disappointment of the reality of how voyeurism and other sexual assault cases were dealt with here in Singapore. Being asked ridiculous and victim blamey questions by the police, not being updated for weeks on end about my case and having to follow up countless of times with no clue on what the next steps were or even being too scared to ask or share my story with anyone. And for all of that to come to the conclusion of my perpetrator being given what I would consider not a legitimate penalty and no real or meaningful protection or support for me, the survivor. Facing the trauma, the shame, and forcing myself to recount the incident multiple times during this process, only to be told, you just have to accept the outcome from my IO, with no chance of appeal on my end. Um, I actually looked forward to going away at that point of time as I was about to leave for exchange in Taiwan. And I thought, you know, maybe going away for a while would make me forget or maybe like lessen the trauma that had ensued. However, as time went on, unfortunately, the only thing that became clearer to me was that there was so much more lacking in the system. And I think that's where we pick up and that's when I took to social media and unexpectedly started a debate in Singapore, held my institution accountable, which thankfully resulted in some change in policies in NUS, supplemented later by amendments in the penal code for voyeurism. Although my face and my name 
um, had gained a lot of popularity and media attention, it was really hard to be put in the spotlight while still struggling to come to terms with the outcome of my own case. And, you know, having to put on a strong front for each interview, knowing that at the back of my mind, I had a real chance to make actionable change if I kept going and kept speaking, but only to be shot down by people time and time again saying that I couldn't possibly be traumatized because of the way I physically presented myself. At the end of it, I, I was happy, yes, that I was able to move the needle slightly at the end of it. And, but it was just not easy in the beginning to put myself out there with no knowledge if the fighting and all this work would amount to anything or if my case would just become another forgotten statistic soon to be joined by many others. On top of that, there is so much stigma when it comes to survivors sharing their stories. I'm not the first person to have posted about their incident on social media or to question institutions and laws put in place, nor will I be the last. And I personally have witnessed other survivors speaking up on social media and sharing their own experiences and then only to be cyberbullied for doing so. Victim blaming occurs when people try to rationalize the behavior of the perpetrator by attributing part or all of the blame onto survivors. And while online platforms have given a voice to survivors like social media, they've also proved to further amplify victim blaming in some of these instances. And that was something that always puzzled me. Like, when a survivor was brave enough to speak up about their abuse, why is the first thing that comes to our mind to question the validity of their experience? I mean, yes, of course, facts are important in all cases of the law, but the reality of it is that false reports are not as common as you might think they are. Global, report, global reports show that only between 2 to 10% of reports of sexual assault are estimated to be false. And among other false reporting cases, they're also known that complainants might have, been, might have been pressured into making a false report by a close one. Knowing statistics like these, why are we still giving the benefit of the doubt to the perpetrator and not to the survivor? It begs the question, why are survivors the ones living burdened by shame-induced silence? <clears throat> I wanted to share a quote today from Grace Team. She's an Australian survivor and advocate for survivors of sexual assault. And the quote goes as follows. It is so important for the nation, in fact, for the world to hear survivor stories. While they are so disturbing to hear, the reality of what goes on beyond closed doors is more so. The more details we omit for the fear of disturbance, the more we soften these crimes, the more we shield perpetrators from the shame that is resultantly misdirected to their victims. History, lived experience, the whole truth, unsanitized, unedited, is our greatest learning resource. It is what informs social and structural change. The upshot of allowing predators a voice, but not survivors, encourages this criminal behavior. This was an excerpt from her speech while accepting the award for Australian of the Year on 25th January this year. And honestly, she said this so much better than I might have been able to. Um, it is so important that we do not let victim blaming or the minor percentage of false reporting take away from the reality of the prevalence of sexual assault. This argument has been used repeatedly and countlessly over the years. And the only reason why I am able to stand before you confidently today 
is because there was not a shadow of doubt that people could cast on me in my case. I mean, there is no doubt that when I was showering and someone came in and filled me non-consensually that the perpetrator was in the wrong. So why do we blame a woman for drinking too much or ask her what she wore after being raped on a first date? Why do we expect the man who has been molested to keep quiet, suck it up and not make a report because only women can be sexually assaulted? There is so much more that needs to be done to change perceptions and lower the numbers of sexual assault incidents happening. And as much as I believe that this work needs to be rooted in our governments, institutions and policies, I also believe strongly that each individual counts in this movement and no action is too small or too negligible. I've said this before, I'm just a normal person, a survivor who advocates with the hopes of Singapore and the world becoming a safer place. But you and I are alike in a way that every action we take to further change perceptions on what is acceptable and what should not be makes a difference. Calling out problematic behavior when you witness at the workplace, accompanying a friend to make a police report, or even going for sexual assault first responder trainings that we have at places like AWARE. We all have little things that we can do to change the way that sexual assault is viewed in Singapore and in the world. It's easy to be quiet, I know, and to sit on the sidelines and not get involved. But this is a problem that affects all of us. And change can only start when you believe, when you have the courage to take the first step and stand up for what you believe in. And so I want to thank everyone here today for giving me the opportunity to share. And I hope that this has been helpful or inspired you in a way or another. And I've come to the end of my sharing. So thank you for having me once again. Thank you, Monica. Thank you very much for that really poignant um, sharing. And um, uh, just now I was um, sharing with everybody that um, through my conversation with, uh, with Monica, I was able to also um, have courage to share my personal experience. And, and actually, uh, I'm also um, a survivor of um, um, molestation. I was molested in a, in a train when I was uh, working in Japan. And it was something that I totally denied that it ever happened. And, and I think talking to her sort of brought it back as well. So, so thank you, Monica. It is, it is, um, it is a problem. Uh, and uh, I think uh, a lot of people don't speak up enough. And I suppose when it happened to me, it was quite some time ago and it was really not quite um, right. There were minefields for me if I had spoken up at that time because the mindsets were just not prepared for somebody to say, I was molested on a train because straight away they'll be asking me, what were you wearing? Why didn't you protect yourself? So totally resonated with me, Monica. Thank you. <laughs> so um, without further ado, I would like to introduce Wendell. So Wendell, you're going to give us the legal aspects, right, of digital technology and how danger lurks behind. Socially, social media has really enabled us to speak up, but it has also enabled more um, tech-enabled sexual assaults. So maybe, Wendell, you can give us uh, more colour on that. Wendell, please. So thanks, Junie. Um, you know, as, as um, Brian and Monica were sharing, I, I was really uh, quite touched, uh, Monica. Um, I think, make no mistake, um, that tech is being uh, weaponized by sexual perpetrators. Uh, it is the uh, weapon of choice, uh, if I can say so. Um, 
But you know, hearing Monica, um, may I say that um, you are not alone, right? And perhaps I am a hopeless optimist, um, but I believe that uh, change is the only constant. So even as I guess I hope to share uh, some of, of what I've observed um, in terms of this space, um, you know, I, I will be even more gratified to hear from my, my fellow panelists, um, even doing the question and answer. Um, if I could call on my slides now. Next. So, you know, whatever that Monica shared, it is so true. Next. The stats bear it out, Monica, that there is an increase in tech-enabled uh, violence, uh, sexual violence. And as you try to move uh, the needle by your uh, advocacy, um, I, I too like to encourage uh, all of us that the eternal question between law and crime is an inevitable one. Um, but one of the burning questions that we will examine today is really whether there is that silver bullet. And you know, for all the frustrations that Monica shared, um, you know, I get it. And I hope many of us, more of us out there uh, get it as well, that um, it, is, it is an issue that we need to not just think about, but it is an issues uh, or issues that we need to talk about uh, next. So you will see in some of these um, stats and slides that really uh, tech has become a fertile ground for exploitation and abuse. And it is happening in our midst. I think that's something that um, if um, could be one of the greatest takeaway from uh, my sharing is to understand that the use of tech as a weapon of choice, uh, whether you call it of mass destruction of, of, of some destruction, uh, it is here uh, amongst us. And that is uh, very, very worrying uh, at times. Next. So on the next couple of slides, I'm, I'm gonna try to just cover them uh, as quickly as I can. The main point being is that uh, one of the overarching themes you're gonna hear me say in a constant refrain, which in a way Monica uh, touched on, was that um, legislation and laws uh, may have to play catch up at times. Um, but this is something that we, we hope, you know, will, that our laws will continue to stay relevant. But there are some tools currently um, that I am pleased to at least share that um, our policymakers, our government has been uh, well listening, Monica. I mean, they, they have tried and they continue to engage with uh, stakeholders like yourself and perhaps even legal practitioners like myself uh, to think through how best uh, can there be an equal balance between uh, deterrence uh, in these cases. So. Uh, in this slide, you will see that um, even in the recent review, um, certain new offenses have been enacted to try to deal with the emerging trends of how digital tech or tech is being weaponized by uh, sexual perpetrators. Next. So I touched about this. Next. Um, that. Our policymakers do recognize this. I can do no better than to echo some of the words that Minister has also shared uh, in the parliamentary debates. Um, Minister Shamugam in 2014 um, said this uh, in parliament. Um, and you will find that 
essentially, um, he makes it clear that cyberspace has made uh, harassment uh, even easier and in many ways more egregious. It is anonymous, it is borderless, it is viral, and it's permanent. Next. And this was followed up even in 2019 uh, by Minister Edwin Tong, even as we tried to sort of tweak our laws um, and to see how we could uh, stay relevant. Um, without a doubt, without a doubt that, um, and, he, I, and I believe Minister was very candid when he said, we cannot trust the tech companies uh, to regulate this, this space or this jungle as, as he calls it. But I think the, the primary motivation um, for some of the commercial entities, and, and, and I'll speak a little bit about this uh, in my concluding slides, about what is the role of uh, gatekeepers, right? Um, as we have a uh, big tech, uh, and they are the service pro providers, I, I offer a view that it has to be a private and public partnership, uh, both commercial entities and even uh, online citizens, um, for us, all of us as an ecosystem, uh, to try to make the online space uh, a little tad uh, safer for everyone. Next. In the review for the uh, Prevention of uh, Protection of, uh, from Harassment Act, there has been sort of upgrades to it, just like any uh, software, there's been upgrades. And I'm pleased to say that even as recent as uh, uh, just two days ago, it was announced that a dedicated protection of harassment courts uh, will be set up uh, to make it easier, more streamlined, uh, to make sure that um, end users or potential uh, um, you know, members in the community can avail themselves uh, to the remedies. So again, the ease of access to legal um, or, or legal tools uh, to arrest this problem of harassment, I think is, is a very important conversation that we continue uh, and, and you know, always need to have. Next. So you will find that likewise, um, um, I'm gonna share a little bit about uh, recent cases um, because you will see that it is still happening, and 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 I guess uh, later you'll hear from Danelle that even you know the 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 workplace in in every possible space it is it is happening, and um, these couple of slides just sort of remind us that um, how how real it is uh, for all of us and for our friends. Next. Yes, um, even for. As Monica has shared her own experience, um, I think, uh, as as Monica also told us, I mean, where uh, it happened to her um, in in the varsities in tertiary institutions. Look, uh, it is still uh, uh, happening uh, on the ground. Next. So there were changes in twenty eighteen as far as the law was concerned. Next. And likewise, the uh, Penal Code Review Committee, or of which I had the privilege to, to sit on that committee, I think clearly recognized that um, the existing laws were inadequate at that time to address all the serious online problems, but that um, the legal reforms have to try to keep pace is a very important point that um, we, we, need, we all need to think about uh, as we uh, talk about these, uh, these issues. Next. So I've talked about new offenses. Um, yes, even voyeurism has been enacted as a specific offense now. Next. And using of tech um, was recognized by the committee in uh, 2018's report. 
um, that we need to deal with some of these uh, explicit use of uh, tech in, in our everyday lives. Next. The new offenses, next. Now, I, I wanted to share um, as to how actually our courts, our judges think about um, what would the punishments be and, and what are their you know, judicial thinking about the use of tech in perpetrating sexual offenses. So you will see next that um, this was a concluded case um, and it is reported. But he used a fake moniker and uh, next. He was uh, sentenced to a global sum of 18 months imprisonment. Um, next, I, I wanted to highlight uh, what the High Court judge said, and it is so important in red. I take this opportunity to signal the court's contempt for such a predatory behavior in the digital realm and accordingly find that general deterrence is a dominant consideration in this case. Next. Sorry, can we go to one slide um, before that? In his concluding remarks, the High Court judge actually said this, that in fact, the use of a online Facebook uh, fake moniker as an aggravating factor, and in fact, it re reveals an intention on, on the perpetrator's part to conceal his identity and uh, detection. So this issue of anonymity, online anonymity is a big problem. Uh, for, for many victims. Next. So in my concluding couple of slides, um, I'm talking about um, what are some of the potential reforms and, and ideas that we can have to keep the online space uh, safer. Next. Now, um, is it going to be a carrot or stick approach? What is the right balance um, I, I have posed some rhetorical question um, about making sure that there is a chain of detection and deterrence. Perhaps there needs to be a better uh, integration of roles between um, the uh, service providers. Perhaps we should think about limiting anonymity online. And what about netizens patrol? What about um, AI patrols using uh, artificial intelligence? Do we want to uh, promulgate an idea of uh, positive whistleblowing, right, on the online space. Um, I think many of us have said that, look, is it possible for the online space to be fully governed uh, to prevent uh, any sort of sexual crimes from happening? Um, if I may speak candidly, I think that's going to be a tall, tall order. It might be an aspirational uh, uh, statement, but I, I think that day is, is far away because for so long as there are perpetrators out there who want to exploit tech, um, Crime will always be there, and I, I, I'm not confident that, that um, and as some of the judges have said, that legislation is the only right uh, tool. Next. So this is what some of the courts have said, um, and I want to end with my last slide, perhaps advocating this that respect and education, uh, in my view, uh, will be key uh, in this fight. And I call it a fight, I call it a struggle because it is a struggle to educate, to, to ensure that um, between uh, what persons do online 
having due respect for um, our uh, female friends, colleagues, um, it, it is so important that, that it starts from young. And, and I think it has to start from our community, one country, um, that we understand that these are the ideals that we want to uh, promulgate. So I've, I, I hope I've um, uh, done my best in sharing uh, as much as I can in the time that's allocated to us. But I sort of feel that uh, during the question and answer session, there will be, you know, there'll be you know, a vibrant space of uh, questions um, that I'll no doubt have to entrust on Juni to allocate the questions uh, and, and those who would deal with them uh, in an equitable way. But uh, thanks so much, everyone. I hope I uh, shared as much as I could. Thank you, Wendell. Thank you. It's, I, I, I guess I'm very heartened to know that um, with the whole landscape changing, we are also um, keeping up with the times in terms of our penal codes, the legislation, because as you said, the, the weapon of choice is uh, technology these days. And um, um, to Danielle, when I was a young working uh, banker, uh, a boss from another department came over when I was sitting down and he put both hands on my shoulders and, and started massaging me saying, hey, Juni, you know, how's the going? And I didn't appreciate that at all. So I pushed my chair back and he kind of tumbled over. But that's another story. <laughs> but really, um, on to you, um, zero tolerance of sexual harassment in the workplace. So please, your stage now. Thank you very much, Junie. Um, thank you, Brian, Monica, and Wendell for some fantastic insights. And thank you, IPS and distinguished guests for providing all of us with this platform to speak on these incredibly important issues. By way of introduction, I've been an advocate for survivors of institutional harassment for several years, ever since I experienced harassment in the workplace as a junior lawyer. As part of my advocacy work, I have been a spokesperson for AWARE's Aim for Zero campaign, which sought to address the underreporting of sexual violence in Singapore and to press for collective support for survivors of all forms of sexual violence. Now, workplace harassment is a gendered issue. Although men do report experiencing workplace harassment, and these figures are not insignificant, the overwhelming majority of cases of workplace sexual harassment involve female survivors. Now, there may be some in the audience today who, despite the fantastic presentations by my fellow panelists, may still have some lingering doubts about the true prevalence of harassment in Singapore, have concerns about false reporting, which Monica touched on so eloquently, and have questions about whether changes to combat workplace harassment in Singapore are really necessary. But I know by your very presence here this afternoon that I am speaking to an audience with a predominantly sympathetic ear. But I think we can all say that we know someone who expresses doubt, who pushes back against the notion that harassment in the workplace is a real problem. Now, when I first started speaking out in 2017 about having experienced harassment at work, the overwhelming reaction that I faced, this is pre the hashtag MeToo movement, was one of disbelief from my colleagues, my friends, my family, and from the HR department. Even after the hashtag MeToo movement has swept the globe and voices of many powerful individuals have raised awareness of this issue, as Monica touched on earlier, 
Many survivors today still face doubt, judgment, and even ridicule when trying to report inappropriate behavior. Now, part of the reason for this reaction stems from a fundamental lack of understanding about the nature of sexual harassment and its impact on survivors. Can I have my first slide, please? And then the one after that. Fantastic. An Ipsos survey released earlier this year in collaboration with Aware Singapore asked 1,000 Singaporeans and PRs whether they had been sexually harassed in the workplace in the last five years. Initially, the responses were that one in five, about 20% of those surveyed, said they had experienced workplace sexual harassment. However, after the participants had answered this first question, behaviors that are classified as sexual harassment were explained to them. The harassment illustrations included, next slide please, pictures, jokes, texts, or gestures of a sexual or sexist nature, alarming or offensive remarks or questions about their appearance, body, or sexual activity, crude and distressing remarks, jokes, or gestures of a sexual or sexist nature, and unwanted physical contact, such as that described by Junie, attempts to initiate romantic or sexual relationships, and implications that career prospects were tied to sexual favors. When the question of whether that participant had experienced sexual harassment was put to them a second time, in light of these definitions, something changed. Instead of one in five, it became two in five. This is 40% of people surveyed stated that they had experienced harassing behavior in the workplace. Most experienced harassment from a peer or a senior person in the workplace. And as a young lawyer, I have to admit that even I didn't know that many of the behaviors that I endured in the workplace could have fallen within these definitions when I first started to experience them. So it is clear that there is a major gap in our collective societal understanding of what constitutes sexual harassment. Next slide, please. Of all of those who experienced harassment, only 30% reported that harassment to any authority. Apart from all of the considerations raised by Monica previously, they also attribute it to wanting to forget about the incident. They didn't think it was severe enough or they didn't believe that they had enough evidence for really anything to happen. Now, bearing in mind all of the very difficult considerations that we as survivors have to take into account, let's look at this statistic. Out of every 10 reports, seven received a response. So that is 30% of those survivors who were brave enough to make a report, who were brave enough to step forward, didn't even receive the basic courtesy of a response. Surely our workplaces can do better than this. And of those who did report, half received a negative response. In many instances, in my instance, the harasser faced no consequences for their actions, despite evidence of their behavior. And I think looking at these figures, we can see that there is a very fundamental problem. If we are to take the participants of this study as a representative sample of workers in Singapore, almost half of us have experienced sexual harassment of some kind in the context of our working careers. 
With statistics such as these, we can see how difficult it is for survivors to make a report. Even if they make a report, there's a significant possibility that very little will be done by their employer, if anything, to assist them. And now experiencing harassment can lead to many different outcomes. And for many of us, including myself, it affects our drive, it affects our ambition. Many of us, again, including myself, we quit our jobs, we're forced out of the workplace. And when we do leave that workplace, we often have difficulty re-entering thereafter. We may have to settle for lower income work, a lower job title, or we may have to move out of that industry entirely. The effects of harassment are very real and they are long lasting. So how do we change this? What steps can we take towards combating this behavior? The Ipsos and AWARE survey highlighted four key issues. The first is a lack of awareness of what constitutes harassment and where survivors to go, can go to get advice or to seek redress. The second is that organizations lack capacity. They may have limited policies to deal with these situations, limited procedures, untrained personnel, and insufficient know-how. They may also need professional help, advisors, mediators, investigators, and they may not know how to access these. Often, to the third point, there is a lack of external authority, and good examples here are where the person who is being harassed is a freelancer or self-employed, and they're being harassed by a client. Where do they go? Where do they get redress? Or where their boss is the harasser, or their boss controls or is close to HR. Finally, we need to look at safety for survivors. Survivors need to be protected from retaliation. There's a lack of general employee trust in company policy and in many cases in the organizational climates of workplaces. So looking at these four key issues, what do we think, what does AWARE think can be done? And here we need to look to national legislation, which is a pretty big ask, I know. Now, what does this national legislation need to look to? It needs to deal with workplace harassment, both sexual and non-sexual. It needs to define workplace harassment using examples such as those that I have raised above previously. And places a legal obligation on employers to prevent and manage workplace harassment, give them very real consequences for failing to assist. There needs to be protection for victims, for survivors, from retaliation, from perpetrators, with enforcement powers in place in the event that retaliation does occur. Employers also need to have the potential to be held liable for workplace sexual harassment. Companies should be given guidance and handholding for the process of investigations to ensure this compliance. There should be enforcement against companies, particularly where there is only one boss who is the perpetrator or where the company fails entirely to protect survivors. And finally, there should be strict action against both repeat offender perpetrators and companies that allow this kind of behavior and these kind of environments, a true deterrent. Finally, this legislation should collect and disseminate data on workplace harassment. 
Public education, as we have seen, is vital. The general public needs to be educated about what sexual harassment is and how it truly impacts survivors. Companies need broad-based training for managers and for their HR. And now, in closing, legislation is not a quick fix. It will take time and it will take effort to bring about lasting change and lasting results, to change attitudes and long-held beliefs. But we must aspire to an inclusive, supportive and empowered workforce and to make our workplaces, our institutions, spaces of safety for us all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Danielle. Thank you. So lots to be done. I think um, we are not aware enough about sexual harassment in the workplace. I, I, think, I think people take for granted a lot of things that um, happen around us could be um, what you just said, you know, about um, just um, uncalled for attention or some power play between the boss and the junior. Um, and, 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 and that is uh, quite disturbing, I must say. Um, well, the questions have come in and uh, we're going to ask Brian first, although that's not the top question, but there was a question specifically to you, Brian, and it says, it's from Irene. A uh, question to Mr. Brian Tan. Can you share from your experience tips to persuade men who are very set in views that women are inferior and subjects to men? Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> now I know why you came this way. Um, no, thank you, Irene, for that question. Um, I'm not sure what we can do um, to address such men. Um, I have to say that um, I don't think all men uh, start off by thinking that way. Um, so I say that for, for men who are, who are married, um, that when we first pursue our wives, our wives are everything, uh, I mean, girlfriends then, uh, we want the very best for them. We want to marry her so that we can help her to uh, achieve her aspirations and everything. And not only, and that's not just, that's just part of the battle. I mean, we, we put in so much fight to make sure that we stand out amongst all the other suitors. We make sure that we uh, stand out so that, you know, her parents uh, note us and approve of us. So it takes a lot just to marry someone. Um, and after that, um, it comes with a lot of our investment into the marriage to start to see how we can start to um, partner one another for that life. So to have that set of um, that women are inferior, I think it doesn't, um, uh, um, I'm not sure how, I don't even know the statistics of how many men actually feel this way, especially in Singapore, because uh, for me growing up, we are so used to um, looking up to, to, to our wives, to women um, at the workplace. Uh, many of us have, have worked for women uh, leaders and we actually enjoy uh, the process in Singapore. Um, but if, and if, yes, I, I do acknowledge that, yes, there might be some men who might think that way. I think it's, it's, it's getting them to understand um, what it is. And here I'm assuming that that's married men. What it is that made you want to put aside everything to pursue your wife, what was, help him to remember the first love, how much he fought to get, uh, to get her to marry him and how much they fought to 
um, keep the marriage going. Um, that's one. Um, and if we do have men who really um, have that kind of a view over women, I would like to think that there are many other men in the community who would start. Uh, we, we do have a sort of a self-regulation within the community where, you know, men watch out for another man. Uh, men make sure that we um, behave in certain manners. Um, yes, we may be aggressive, we may be dominant, we may, be, we may egg one another on, I mean, talking about other men. But when it comes to women, I think by and large, there's this uh, understanding that you never hurt a woman, not in Singapore. And case in point, you just look at the prisons. I mean, a lot of the inmates there, and this I, I, I get from a lot of the inmates that we, that we engage with, they don't do very kindly for um, men in prison. I mean, inmates in prison who got in because they hurt women, because they have um, sexual um, uh, uh, crimes and all, those men are not let off by the other inmates in prison. So even then, that is uh, their own, uh, we do have a justice system going on within communities of men. Um, so if there is anything to, for women to highlight, I think voicing it out, I think having that conversation with the men uh, not telling him what to do, but really sharing how you feel and the men, um, most men will understand what needs to be done to rectify it, especially if we know that we have hurt you, we want to do something to make up for that. Okay, thank you, Brian. I'm, I'm just wondering if um, Centre for Fathering or That's for Life, you have some causes for, for, for this, right? I mean, for, for the fathers to sort of come together to, to maybe learn about fathering or parenting. You do have that, right? Yes, we do run a lot of uh, programs right. and we do have a yes. lot of fathering workshops um, that are actually just safe spaces for men to talk okay. about the challenges okay. that we face. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because there, I mean, there, there are other questions, although it's a bit lower in terms of the votes, asking about you know, whether there is a, a place where um, you know, men can also go, where there's a safe place where, where they can... Um, talk about um, their own, you know, feelings as well in a safe, safe space. So thank you for that. Um, the next one is uh, for for Wendell. Also, also Brian, you were in the armed forces for a long time, but I thought I'll just toss this to Wendell. To what extent is national service a source of toxic masculinity, and how can we make it less so? So if 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 you have been familiar with all the Facebook comments and everything, a, a lot of conversation going on right now about toxic masculinity. Um, any comments, Wendell? Well, um, that doesn't sound like a legal question, but you know what? I, I'll, I'll sort of do my best anecdotally. Yes, I've been, I've been very privileged um, to have been able to serve uh, in the uh, armed forces as uh, NS men. So I think I understand some of the um, online con conversation that's currently uh, underway. Whereas my perspective is this, I think we need to deconstruct and redefine uh, that phrase, uh, uh, toxic masculinity, because it's all about mindsets as uh, Monica, Donnell, and all my other uh, friends have, have sort of shared. Um, but it starts at the top. I think it's not about whether um, uh, women should serve NS or, or whether that there should be you know, other, other avenues, but I think uh, central to all of that, if that is a perception, then I believe uh, my view is that it starts from a, a change in mindsets. And when uh, 
in the course of NS, I mean, there are there are activities where 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 the various groups have to come together to bond, but the bonding doesn't have to take on a toxic masculinity uh, 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 focus. It's about getting the job done, you know, getting the mission and the objectives of national service done. So I like to sort of reframe and, and urge all of us to rethink the, the conversation as to what is really happening uh, in national service. Um, and it's really more about the individual mindset because it doesn't matter even if, and, and we know of uh, anecdotal sort of uh, conversations overseas in, in, in foreign armed forces, right? Where mm. that could be uh, both male and female serving, but the issue of sexual harassment, sexual offenses, it still happens. And I like to think that in our, in our current armed forces uh, situation, um, those issues are, are less pervasive and, and the stats would definitely show up. So my take, mindsets. I think so long as we re redefine the conversation, don't allow that sort of toxicity to dominate the, the, the training activities within NS, um, I think that will go a long way uh, in achieving that respect that I talked about uh, for each other. Okay. Actually, Danielle, maybe I could ask you, to what extent do you think national service actually um, exacerbates this, this kind of behaviour, <laughs> translates into workplace harassment? Well, I do think, and I don't necessarily mean to contradict any of my fellow panellists at all, um, but... I know that um, AWARE's director, Karina Lim, did a talk specifically discussing the issue of NS and toxic masculinity and how that pervades society after this point. Now, I think I've never, of course, done NS. So caveat out of the way, but speaking as somebody who engages with survivors of sexual violence across Singapore, across types of work, um, across age groups, look, there is a very, very real problem of misogyny in Singapore. And I think that we can see this all the way through society. Um, we can see this in the SG Nasi Lama telegram groups. Um, we can see this in Monica's situation, which has been echoed again and again after she raised awareness, and I'm sure was echoed before she raised awareness. So our young men have a very large problem, and that is their attitude towards women. And now I don't know, because I haven't got firsthand experience of this, what it's actually like to be in a training camp in NS. But I do know that research has shown that there are a lot of behaviors that go on in NS that really contribute to this attitude towards women. I believe Karina in her talk was, talk was speaking about how when she spoke to NS men, they reported that the vast majority of conversations were taken up by speaking about women, speaking about sexual partners, speaking about women's bodies, objectifying women. And now this is locker room talk. And I think that as soon as I say the words locker room talk, anybody who has read anything about feminism knows that we feminists do not like locker room talk. <laughs> and yes, in the moment, it may be harmless. Absolutely. You can have a laugh. You can have a laugh with your guys. But if you think about how this affects maybe the older people in NS speaking about this, 
and sharing their views with the younger people. And then the younger people grow up to be more senior and they share the same views with the people who are just coming into NS. And we can protect our boys all we like, but then you're bringing them into this hyper-masculine environment that really creates a culture of toxicity, which has been borne out by these surveys that Karina has done and that AWARE has done. Um, and I think that I do not have the answer to this. I really don't, but definitely something needs to be done. And Wendell's right, it needs to be done from the top. People need to change this locker room talk and make sure that it doesn't happen or limit it at least. I think um, what Wendell said was also uh, right about respect. I think respect should be a key word here. Yeah, it should be a keyword here. I have one question. Um, perhaps, Monica, you can take this. It's from uh, Risa. And uh, it's asking, what are some of the barriers facing bystanders in stepping in and protecting and advocating? Uh, whoops, it skipped. Oh, somebody voted it up. Oh, no. I've lost that one. Just hang on a moment. Uh, it's about how to help Yes, that's right. What are some of the barriers facing bystanders in stepping in and protecting or advocating for those who may be vulnerable? And how can we address these barriers? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of the barriers that, that, that stop people from stepping in, I think the main issue is that people are afraid or like they're afraid to sort of step in and be in the situation where they are a first responder or someone that has the pressure of like helping a, a person who is who has been sexually assaulted. And a lot of this is because they are not equipped or not or not um are not sure what to do with this information. I think um in some cases I can even talk from personal experience from friends who have shared this about me, uh, shared this with me. Um at times, you know, they they feel so strongly about the issue and they want to help their friend they want to be like yes go and make the report yes you know go and like talk about this on social media when in reality the the survivor is like I actually don't want to talk about this with mm -hmm. anyone I don't even know if I want to make a report actually I just wanted to tell you and then the bystander is like what do I do now right so I think um for me firsthand what I would say in terms of helping people like this is that you can there are, there are programs from aware such as um, first responder trainings that they have um, that will allow people like us who don't have any um, awareness of what to do or like where to begin um, helping others. Um, I think in the program, they go through things such as like the definition of sexual assault in itself, understanding consent. Um, I think they also talk about like available resources and things like that, or like how as a first responder, you can be helpful. So not just, it's not just about taking action, but really listening to the survivor and understanding what they need in that moment, understanding that not everyone's response will be the same and really just being a non-judgmental source of support for them. Yeah, so I think um, this training, actually I went through this training after um, uh, after like sometime, I think last year or the year before, and it really opened my eyes to even like how, how even I responded. I sort of understood myself better and stopped like mm. so hard on myself. Um, yeah, because I, I realized that everyone's reaction to... Um, an incident, incident like this, like sexual assault, something that is so personal and so like packed with so much emotions, like shame and disappointment and fear. No one is ever going to react in the same way. And every time, you know, the, the more that we make this a norm, that 
you know, like what I talked about earlier, like even though I was presenting myself physically strong and like talking, or even like now being on this panel, you know, it's like deep down, it still, it still hurts. Like the incident still hurts and it still affects me every mm-hmm. day. I don't use, I'm not, I'm not able to use like public washrooms without someone being there. And it's still a real thing for me. And so it is for, for everyone else. And I think the more that we understand that and the more that we, we accept that, um, you know, survivors have different ways of showing this. It doesn't take from the actual seriousness of the issue, the better we can be in supporting them. Yeah. And I think also like it's, um, it's, it's maybe, you know, giving, giving the survivors a safe space. So I, for example, in institutions like NUS, they now have um, the victim care unit that was set up after, um, after my incident, which I'm like super happy and proud of. It still has, it still has its ways to becoming like, well yeah, becoming a full and really like properly functioning system and integral in, in this like reporting system. But I think having that first step, even setting it up and then having NUS have their own like little institution groups that, that created as well. I think this all really led to um, a good culture of now survivors being more able to report directly to their universities or being able to speak with someone from their universities. So the victim care unit itself doesn't just function as... Um, like a, a, a mini police station within NUS. It's more of like you right. someone who is supposed to be trained to understand and um, handle speaking, being a first responder and speaking to a survivor. Yeah, so I think all these little things um, are things that we can pick up on as bystanders. But yeah, I think being a, being a, being a true friend and being, like being, able, being able to listen to the person is the most important thing. Thank you. Thanks, Monica. Actually, um, trauma-informed care is, uh, is important as well um, because we always tend to ask, why? Why did it happen to you, right? If somebody tells us, instead of like, how can I help? Kind of, you know, so so I think the first responder training, trauma-informed care, all these would be very um, useful uh, for, for us. Uh, Wendell, I've got a poha question for you. <laughs> um, it's from Noor Amelia. And um, she asked, do you think more should be done to check online discourse over and above POHA? For instance, mandating ID verification on forums like, like uh, Home Zone, I think it's Home Zone. Anonymous sexist content still run rampant and unchecked. Your views. Okay, so, so here is where I would say uh, dare to dream, right? So <laughs> what, what, is my, what is my wish list? Um, Recall, um, that, that, that's a great question, right? Because um, is there ever enough protection? Ask Monica. She will tell you no, right? Why? There, there can never be enough, uh, uh, too much of a good thing. But the question is really um, what, what is within the sort of acceptable norms at, at this time? I, I agree with that proposition. It is, it is, it is something that... Um, I think we can, you know, continue the conversation about limiting anonymity online. Uh, whether we can effect that, for instance, legally, if the service providers are out out of jurisdiction, how how do you sort of mandate that sort of requirements? But you know what? I think we need to start about uh, start talking about these things. And um, to the extent that um, when I talked a little bit about having a netizens patrol, uh, a private public partnership. I think these are ideas that we can continue to sort of uh, give feedback to the government, uh, perhaps to stay one step ahead um, and to form that, to sort of expand that, that, that ecosystem where uh, 
perhaps the, the phrase is, it is safe to report, right? And people actually feel safe to come forward um, to, to report certain incidents that, that, that they see online. Um, but some of these tools that uh, has been asked in the question, I think certainly uh, my, my perspective would be yes. I think we need to constantly look at uh, avenues and tools, uh, legal tools, to stay ahead of the game, right? Because these tech guys, it's, it's very savvy, as, as you know. I mean, tech changes almost every day, right? So being able to understand the tech and being able to be a couple of steps ahead, if we can, I think mm-hmm. would certainly uh, be important. But one of the greatest drivers, um, if you study uh, uh, the uh, psychology of offending, is that when you're anonymous, right, mm-hmm. you sort of, feel a bit more brave in trying to perpetrate some of these crimes. But if we limit their ability to be anonymous and they have to think twice about possibly being caught, I think that limits their sort of um, their risk appetite, if you know what I mean, about wanting to even uh, send that viral post or to say something online um, against a, a victim or a, a, a female. Mm, and, 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 oh, yes, Brian. So I thought I just wanted to chime in. Uh, Please. Yeah, I, I, I thought one, one perspective that we could adopt is what could we do on the preventive uh, continuum. Mm. So I think there's a lot that um, could be done to equip parents to, uh, put, to help our children navigate um, that sphere and to protect them from the home. Um, that's one. The other one is really, you know, like for me as a dad, I have three boys. I want my boys to grow up knowing what it means to respect women, what it means to respect others. How are they? So, so when it comes to the, the way they use the internet, the way they, they use technology and all, they need to know how to uh, use it, not just as consumers, but to create things and to be uh, respectful, even though they could be anonymous. So something has to be done from the home. And I think more could be done to support us from the home front. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Brian. Thank you. Actually, this question has been voted up to the top. It's about broken men. Again, so um, (laughs) do you think broken men who exhibit toxic masculinity and violent behavior are in some ways victims of the environment they are in? What can be done to rehabilitate them besides legal penalties? So who would like to take that? Daniel. Very quickly, (laughs) because I know that uh, I'm not a man, so I... I'm happy to pass the the mic here. But I think in short, toxic masculinity and and also this is also for women who have internalized this misogyny and who also cause issues for other women within the workplace or within society. All of this is a result of a patriarchal society. We cannot deny this. And so you could probably say that logically men who exhibit toxic masculinity are victims, but they they are a result of a system that brings women down and lifts women and lifts men up. But also, as we've seen in toxic masculinity, there is a lot of problem and a lot of issues that come with this toxic masculinity with the patriarchy, meaning that men feel that they have to keep everything in, they have to be strong, that that this is the only acceptable way to be, that they cannot show emotion. And that is very, very, very damaging for men's mental health in the long run. So yes, absolutely, I think that they can be victims. So Brian, you wanted to take that question? 
maybe I'll start and I'll let uh, Wendell bring Wendell. it home later. <laughs> yeah. Um, Procurement, yeah. So, so I shared uh, my wife's perspective of living with a uh, very toxic uh, man. Um, also, I, I, I mean, no, no offense to, to, to my panelists. Uh, I, I shared that I didn't like the word toxic because uh, it, it was so much of who I am, right? That um, I find it hard to uh, get, get away from it. Like the way I was brought up, the way I was, I was taught to act as a man, to man up in so many circumstances. Uh, it helped me to, to, to um, stay sometimes ahead of the pack, sometimes to be included in the pack, sometimes to be... Um, all, all the while, I was thinking that, you know, this is what society expects of me. This is what uh, my wife expects of me. This is what my children expects of me. There's so many different expectations. And honestly, there isn't one that kind of... Um, that is general enough to, to apply to every single man in every single uh, circumstance. So who I am as a man, um, toxic as I may be to my wife, um, what, what, what I realized was I need to know what she needs. I need to know what my parents uh, needed of me uh, because these are some of the places that I try to seek affirmation from. I'd like to be independent, but at the same time, I know that I need to be affirmed by the people closest to me. And that's what frames uh, masculinity for me. What does it mean to be a son, a man, a husband and a father. But at the same time, I know that I'm broken because there are, there are aspects of my uh, behaviors, my masculinity that could hurt people around me. So I cited one example, right? About, you know, how I put my wife down. Uh, sometimes very loosely, I, 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 I fall into the trap of um, talking about, you know, um, talking about, you know, her, her, her body parts, describing her appearances. And sometimes I think it's done in jest, uh, but actually it, it hurts my wife. And words have power. And what's worse is when my children see me talking that way about their mother, it doesn't help them because it doesn't. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. Put, I'm not leaving them the the blueprints of what it means uh, to be a husband uh, to to my wife. What it means to be respecting um, the mother of my children. So I know that these things um, have an effect. And yes, you're right. Locker room talks. Um, it's pernicious. Uh, and not. And, and I thought I should just stay there. Not, not all men indulge in that. <laughs> uh, but yes, we do have um, enough men up there that, that, that does it, that, uh, that, that hurts uh, women with, with such things. Uh, and I think for me, I have been involved in, in some of these uh, um, uh, scenarios where I, I indulge in it, thinking that it's, uh, it's harmless. But actually, after listening to so many women over the years, uh, understanding the the hurts and the pains and sometimes the fear the, that they present at the workplace. I know that this is, and me and many men know that this is sometimes not possible. So mm-hmm. in relation to, you know, an earlier question about NS or uh, breeding toxic masculinity, um, I spent a lot of, a long time in there, more than two decades in there. And I just thought I should say that uh, we do have a very strong stand against um, any acts or any activities that seem to um, dishonor or disrespect women. Um, we, we, we put really harsh stands there to make sure that harassment doesn't get overboard. Yes, there are some activities that require uh, young men to man up. Um, I've been a recipient of that. I mean, it's taught me leadership, taught me resilience, taught me a lot of other things, but yet it has to be done in a controlled manner for a right purpose. So if I could reframe it, one of the things that maybe we might want to look at to have a review is toxic leadership because it's all about leadership. It's hierarchical. It's how 
the leaders at every level lead their, lead their men, lead their service women, because we do have a lot of that. How do we break, harmonize um, it and make sure that everything that is done is done with the right purpose in mind? Um, so with that, I thought I'll just uh, hand over to Wendell. <laughs> Wow. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. You know why? Because there's another question for Brian, but I think Wendell can also uh, take this question. Uh, it says, men who are, it's from Sochin. Thank you, Soch. Men who are reminded they did a lot to pursue a woman and to marry a woman, won't these men sometimes treat women as possessions they must control? Could this mindset be toxic? So I'll leave that part to Brian. I'll come back <laughs> to the earlier question. There's also the called the art of deflection, which is equally important. Um, you know, but seriously though, I mean, um, it's, it's been uh, such a humbling experience just hearing all the questions um, that have been flowing, but you know, my fellow panelists, but may I share a perspective? I, I think it is difficult to legislate respect. I think the solution doesn't lie in punishments. I think respect has to be a living word. I believe that. I believe that respect, mutual respect has to be lived out. Um, and we need to have good role models. Um, I think even just hearing Danelle, I sort of feel that um, Asian values um, are still very central in our society. We are Asians. And but the concept of Asian family values, how um, uh, the, the breadwinner or joint breadwinners, you know, um, mother, father, um, brother, sister are seen. I think that conversation is evolving. Um, and I guess as an aspirational ideal, um, as Asian values about a family and the, and the family unit evolves, um, perhaps I, 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 again, as I started off saying, I'm, I'm hopelessly optimistic that um, we can only do better in this arena. Um, and that's what I, I would aspire to be. Um, so I don't think that specific laws and deterrence is the right way to go to, to shape that sort of behaviors. I think we really need to work with what is in the heart. Um, um, and when Monica talks about uh, first responders, I, I think about heart responders, you know, even when we deal with situations, how are we uh, relating to each other in our everyday lives? Um, but on a tougher question, over to you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I brought this upon myself by highlighting it. <laughs> you did, yeah. you did, by the way. So, yeah, yeah I think um, maybe let me reframe it. Um, I think one of the things that we suffer from in, in, in our society today is really a poverty of relationships. Um, I cited, yes, we, we do so much to pursue our wife. I, I did. Um, I wanted to be a relationship and all. And at some point, um, yes, after I, I've, I've, I've pursued, I, I've won my wife's heart, what then do I do to it? Do I continue to nurture it? Do I continue to invest in the relationship that I try so hard to, so hard to build? Um, I wanted to at the very beginning, but um, as in with many men I know, um, life catches up with us. We, we, we fall into the trap of the busyness of life. And yes, um, I, um, sometimes we could uh, end up um, going down that road of um, just uh, possibly even objectifying uh, our wives, right? So my wife um, is just that person at home, um, unfortunately. Um, and, and I have to say that at the, at the very beginning when, when, when we started off our, our marriage, um, I, wanted, I didn't want my wife to work. 
not because I wanted to stay home and look after the kids. At, at, at the point in time, I, I never wanted kids. When we got married, I said I never wanted kids because I, I, I didn't know how to be a father. That's the truth of it. So I just wanted a world for the two of us and I wanted to provide for her. I wanted to be the sole breadwinner so that she can do whatever she wanted to do with her life so that she's free to do it so that she didn't have to work because I, we needed her to work. Um, in the end, she ended up working and working harder than I. Uh, she became an entrepreneur uh, because she really loved doing that. And I was quite glad to uh, support her there. Um, but at the same time, I knew that I couldn't give her a lot of support because I was still consumed with my work. Um, so I don't think I really uh, fell into that trap of you know looking at her as a trophy wife. Um, but I, I do know that um, I could see how... Okay, so I, I, I speak on... on for myself, because I don't, I've never heard of any man who comes to me telling me that he's married a trophy wife um, yet. Um, I could be very wrong with, um, I, I mean, I could be very biased with this because I'm, I'm not exposed to, to that, that part of the um, minefield. The, the man world, yes, the part of the minefield. But I do know that I take my wife for granted, and I think that's as good as, uh, treat, as, as object, objectifying her and just having her as somebody who's, who's there when I, when I need her and the rest of the time she gives me the space to do my work. And I think that's, that's equally um, um, damaging to our relationship. And because I never invested much into the relationship, we became like housemates. Um, she didn't have a husband. She didn't have a, a father of her children for more than seven years because I was just that housemate. I provided for the family. Um, I was hoping that she could nurture our kids uh, at the very beginning but that's as much as it got and I think in that way you can say that I kind of um, objectified her to a, a certain role while she was trying to balance um, a, a career a business and all so mm -hmm. what turned around I think it was getting back into that conversation me being equipped to have that conversation with her me acknowledging the hurt that I have inflicted on her me acknowledging that there was that poverty of relationship in our marriage, in our family, and me being, I guess, supported um, by a community of uh, other fathers and men who helped to not just uh, mentor, but to guide and to coach uh, me to, to, to be able to be vulnerable. Um, and like what Danielle said, to, to, for the first time, uh, to be able to share my feelings and to be able to relate to my wife at an emotional level. Um, and, and, and I thought that was a game changer for me. And I, and I think this is something that at the Center for Fathering, um, they try very hard to help men to, to, to be secure in their identity, to be able to have a good conversation and to also present perspectives of um, the children and the wives at the various life, significant life cycle stages um, of, of, of the family life you know Thank so you, Brian. I was a beneficiary well okay no 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 it's it's really very heartening I mean it's it's so heartfelt you know you're, you're sharing your personal sharing um I want to move to 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 Monica because uh, there's one question on cancel culture um and uh it's, it's from Shamil um uh, he says or she says cancel culture lacks important discussions of recovery um I do not know why it keeps skipping. Because whenever I want to say something and then it just gets booted up. Aha, I see it here now. Um, it's about how should we deal with perpetrators who have served their time. And I know in your personal experience, 
how how do you relate now to the the person who you know did that to you mm, i think okay for me personally when it comes to my own incident i think that because i was like i was someone that like i mentioned became very popular in the media and then my whole case um was blown up in the papers and all over the news unfortunately my perpetrator was also brought along on that ride with me and yep. i mean i I've, i've mentioned this previously before like just because i was given a platform to speak i don't think that i have i i should be the one dictating what you know what he deserves or what punishments there are because i feel like in terms of how perpetrators should recover there is a lot of research done into that and i think that in each case there is a different a different sort of um individual like assessment or treatment that needs to be handled but when it comes to cancel culture in itself i i think this topic is something that has been debated so 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 much on social media lately mm. and i personally don't i don't think that cancel culture was was rooted in something negative i think it started off with some something as a platform where someone could someone could um speak and and talk about what they believed in and share their own opinion and maybe call out or like it was like you know a, a whistle blow in that sense and it sort of developed and like it grew into this huge um this this huge monster that sort of became even more like cyberbullying and like witch hunting and things like that and honestly i i feel personally that a lot of this comes with regulation right because i think that just because there is a lot of people out there who are, who want to um cyber bully and hurt other people it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about things on social media as well because i think there's a fine line of balance there where it's important to call out and talk about things and discuss and have like very um like important discussions about topics such as these but at the same time we have to regulate how they are handled and how like um whether people should be responsible for the type of comments they leave on social media and Yeah, I mean even in my in my case there was a point in time where there was um there was actually somebody had started a page that said like oh you know throw this, my perpetrator into jail and I actually reached out and told the person please don't don't post this because I, I don't think I don't agree with what you're saying what I'm doing here is much bigger than just my case I've actually accepted that my case is not going to be changed because it's already been closed I'm trying to fight for something else here lah so let's let's focus on that instead and I think there was so much and so many comments and it was just it reached a point where it was just too much lah and I, i i was also not able to control it and and really take control of the situation so i yeah to answer your question like honestly i can't give you an answer on like you know what i what i think should be done about cancel culture mm-hmm. sure is that what with what happened to me i think that it really requires more regulation on like platforms like social media where we are allowed to share our views because i feel like even from just my case people came up after me and they were they wanted to talk about it but they weren't sure like whether they would get cancelled for giving an opinion you know and it's important that we have discussions like these like even in the conference chat right here right, i'm i'm reading it as well we're going along and I, i'm like so i'm so impressed by the discussions that we're having here because it's a safe space right but we need some we need more of things like this like places where normal community people i mean people in the communities are can just discuss their views and add their questions and ask like you know ask like what what and what, there are no wrong questions yeah and they're not going to be like shamed or, or cancelled for it but at the same time like i said there is also harassment there is also cyberbullying there is a line there it's not just oh this is my opinion i can share whatever i want right. 
you are still harassing someone, it is still harassment. You know, like there is a line there. So we have to make sure that people can share their views, but at the same time have it mandated. I think that's what I believe. Okay, yeah. thank you, Monica. I'm, I'm conscious of the time and I want to respect everyone's time as well. Um, perhaps we would like to have a parting shot. See, not bad, huh? Okay, I just <laughs> invite uh, anyone, any speaker for a parting shot. No, bury the mind and the minefield for the next uh, panel. <laughs> Everyone's quite shy and respectful. So, okay, so with that, I'm going to hand over to Jackie. Thank you so very much. It has been a very good conversation. And um, I, I think we should still continue. Uh, they asked, you know, the minefield is still out there. Mindset change takes a long time, but I think to be able to talk about it, I think this is a step in the right direction. And I am also optimistic, like Wendell, and things will be better. <laughs> <laughs>